Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, the international science show. Relax and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. My name's Lachlan Watmore and on this edition we'll feature a first for us with fresh news on the herpes vaccine. Victoria Bond will talk to Robert Boy from Sydney University about the rising importance of dengue fever and she'll also talk to Marie Tesson from the National Drug and Alcohol Centre about the relationship between schizophrenia and cannabis. It's always been a pleasure to be at the cutting edge of something, if only as a witness. I was recently in the United States and I caught up with Dr. Bill Halford from Southern Illinois University. We had the pleasure of talking to Bill back in 2007, when he was busy trying to find a vaccine for herpes simplex virus. Herpes is an enormously common infection, with at least 90% of the human population carrying at least four different strains. Most of us have had a cold sore outbreak, but for a small percentage of people, these outbreaks can be extensive, disfiguring, deeply embarrassing, and in the case of pregnant women, potentially lethal to their baby. A vaccine could save both lives and love affairs. Bill reckons he's made a herpes vaccine that's both effective and long-lasting. Previous attempts at a herpes vaccine have tried two approaches. The subunit approach involves only a piece of the virus being used, say just a few proteins, which is very safe but doesn't give the immune system a good look at the enemy, a bit like trying to identify a person from just their nose. The second is the replication defective approach, which uses a whole but virtually sterile virus which can't replicate and is mostly destroyed by the primary or innate immune response before the secondary or adaptive response in which specialist antibodies are formed is fully mobilised. Bill Halford has found a third approach. Bill? So my approach is a little bit more strategic, if you will, based on sort of actual knowledge of the biology of the virus. So I've been studying the virus for about 18 years. There's 130 known herpes viruses, and they live in frogs, crocodiles, elephants, um, sea otters, pretty much anything with a backbone has a herpes virus. And there's even one that's been uh, recovered from oysters. So they're evolutionarily ancient viruses, and they all basically have the same gig, which is that they've co-evolved with their host. And the idea is to infect the host, establish a low-grade infection, propagate a fair amount, but not so much you damage the host. Because if you kill the host, it's, it's lights out for the virus. So the idea is to just colonize as many members of the species as possible. And it's quite successful at this because you know, most humans carry four human herpes viruses. About 90% of us have at least four human herpes viruses sprinkled throughout our bodies. And we, for the most part, we're completely unaware of the infection. So it's a very successful virus. But the whole life cycle hinges upon the ability to alternate between either going through productive replication or in particular when the immune cells show up to deal with the virus and potentially kill it, what it does is it senses that and it just shuts off. And as long as it shuts off its synthesis of its foreign proteins, the immune system's happy enough, you know, the problem's solved, and it just sort of backs off, and then when the immune cells go away, it comes back out. So this, anyway, this switching process of going back and forth hinges upon a protein called ICP0. It's a regulatory protein. 
And so to make a vaccine, what I've effectively done is gone into this regulatory protein, knowing that if you synthesize this protein naturally, it strongly pushes the virus towards active replication. So likewise, if you go into the virus and kill its ability to make this one protein, you strongly bias it towards establishing a silent or a non-productive infection. And then if you sort of, you know, just take out critical pieces of the protein, you can sort of achieve a balance where it may propagate a bit, but as soon as the immune response heightens at all, it just shuts off. And so that's why this vaccine strain that I've made can go into the body, maybe go through two, three, four rounds of replication, but as soon as the immune response heightens, um, you know, two days after you've been inoculated, it just shuts off. Um, so it's a very, it's in many ways, it's like the natural infection. It's just it doesn't um, undergo as much propagation, so it can't cause symptomatic disease. How did you work out how much of it to chop out to achieve that balance between safety and efficacy? Really, ultimately, it was trial and error. The groundwork was laid in herpes simplex virus type 1. And in herpes, herpes simplex virus type 1, ironically, even though it is, does not cause as much disease, when the virus infects the cell, that is HSV-1 infects the cell, it replicates to much higher levels. That is, you get much larger amounts of virus out. So in the context of HSV-1, if you go in and cut out this entire gene, it can still propagate a fair amount. Whereas with HSV-2, the set point for how much virus, infectious virus, the cell produces is about a hundredfold lower. So if you go into HSV-2 and simply cut out the entire ISP-0 gene, you effectively kill the virus. It can't replicate. Even though it's not a strictly essential gene, for all intents and purposes, it doesn't replicate much in animals. And so we tried a couple of permutations of that, and those were just abject failures. Um, that is, we could inoculate the animals. There's a little bit of replication, but too much to really stimulate a robust immune response. Um, so then from there, what I did was look at the protein, and the protein has three domains that are highly, that is three regions of amino acid sequence that are highly conserved between HSV1 and HSV, HSV2. Um, by, so con by conserved you mean common between? Common, yeah. The, yeah. the amino acid identity is quite high in these three regions. So we reason that, okay, if these, you know, these viruses have evolutionarily diverged, you know, tens of millions of years ago. So if there's this conservation, that would argue those regions are important. So we said, okay, why don't we go in and cut out region one, two, or three? Now region one, it's called a ring finger domain. It's quite meaningless what it means. But anyway, it's a, it's a portion of the protein that everyone, so this is a fairly important protein in herpes simplex biology. That is, anyone that studies this virus would know this protein. And everyone knows the ring finger domain is quite critical for its function. So we went and reasoned, okay, we'll take out the ring finger domain, which is quite an obvious thing to do. Except when you do that, the virus is dead. Tired and shagged out after a long squawk. And, and we made a lot of mutations in that particular region. That's kind of what we were banking on. Maybe five or six mutations in that region. Every one of them was dead as a doornail. However, there are two other conserved regions that are less studied. One is a what is called a nuclear localization signal. So as the protein's made in the virus-infected cell, it's synthesized in the cytoplasm. But ultimately, it, it, one of its really critical functions requires that it moves back into the nucleus because it helps turn on RNA synthesis off of the viral genome. And so by cutting out this nuclear localization signal, the protein's made, but it's in the cytoplasm. It can't do its job in the nucleus. So when we deleted the nuclear localization signal, then we got a really nice mutant that 
very sensitive to interferon. Um, that is the body's innate immune response. And so, yeah, we inoculate animals with it. It replicates a bit, but it shuts down really quickly. And so that's kind of our lead vaccine candidate, so-called zero-delta NOS. The NOS refers to nuclear localization signal. What's the what's the importance of the uh, of the, um, the sensitivity to interferon? Right. So th this is actually a really critical point. This is what sets this vaccine apart, really, from any vaccine that's been made. Um, there are two components to the body's immune response to a virus, and we've studied the role of T and B lymphocytes, the adaptive immune response to death. We know a lot about that, but in f but that adaptive immune response takes time to develop. So the, what the body needs is an immediate response to infection, like active within 30 to 60 minutes after an infection starts, and that is the innate immune response. Shock troops, in other words. What's that? Shock troops. Yeah, just, yeah, something that just is launched immediately. And in particular, in the context of viruses, that is called the interferon response. So named by two fellows, Isaacs and Lindemann, back in 1957, because it, they're basically short-range hormones. They're called cytokines. But these cytokines that were discovered back in 1957 interfered with viral replication, so they were called interferons. Um, but anyway, that's our body's very rapid response to infection. So the idea of this vaccine is that you inoculate an animal or ultimately a human being with this interferon-sensitive virus, and when you first put the virus into the body, there is no interferon, there's no immune response. But by the time the virus has completed just a single cycle of replication and gone through propagation, the body is already starting to mount an interferon response, which greatly limits the spread. And, and what that gives you, it gives you the opportunity to actually, for the virus to actually present things to the body's immune system, but not so much time um, that you will actually get disease. That is, you'll get a very low grade in apparent infection. And, and actually, in the paper we just published on this, you know, we prove just point blank that if we take animals, normal animals, that are interferon competent, they don't get disease. We can even take animals that are the equivalent of the boy in the bubble, you know, severe combined immunodeficient. They don't have any B or T lymphocytes, so they're much more immunocompromised than an AIDS patient. But they also are quite resistant to this vaccine strain because even though they don't have lymphocytes, they still have an interferon system. So it's like complete, two completely different arms of the immune system. However, if we go into other mice that are genetically deficient in a way where they're basically interferon impaired, they're very sensitive to this and they will actually get quite sick. Now, fortunately, this type of immune, immune deficiency in the interferon system, it is something that does genetically exist in mice because we made them that way. But, you know, these immunodeficiencies are basically just don't exist in the human population because you can't survive in the real world without an interferon system. Do you consider your vaccine complete now? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I would call this, as herpes vaccines go, a third generation vaccine. So I could certainly picture a situation where there might be a fourth generation, you know, some way to tweak it to make it slightly better. But I, I would say it's head and shoulders better than anything that's been produced that's out there. You know, of the three vaccines, three herpes vaccines that have either entered or completed clinical trials, I, I would guess this is at least tenfold better than any of those. Who can take a sunrise, sprinkle it with dew, cover it with chocolate or a miracle or two.
the candy man. The candy man can. Well, it's not often I get to say this, but you heard it here first, folks. Stay tuned and we will keep you abreast of Bill Halford's amazing herpes vaccine as it hopefully moves from development to manufacture. Our intrepid medical reporter, uh, Victoria Bond, is also an intrepid medical student, and she has this habit of cornering her supervisors and lecturers in the corner and picking their brains about various things to put on the radio and other parts, parts in between. Lately, she talked to Dr Robert Boy from Sydney University about the rising importance of dengue fever. My name is Professor Robert Boy. I'm Head of Research at the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance, which is part of the University of Sydney. Okay, so I, I guess I should begin by asking you a little bit about dengue fever, which is the topic of our interview today. What is dengue fever? Well, dengue fever is caused by a virus, and it's spread by mosquito bites, particularly the Aedes aegypti mosquito, which is also the carrier of malaria. All right. And uh, what, what does it look like? What's the disease? The disease looks like a, a bad influenza, which can turn fatal. Uh, in adults and children, it can cause a high fever, a really bad headache, pain behind the eyes, pains in the joints and chills, uh, but also, unlike influenza, you can get a rash and you can proceed to quite a severe shock, especially in children, um, and, and if not uh, well treated, can lead to death. And does it lead to death in a lot of people? How, how aggressive is it as a disease? Uh, most people survive just fine. Maybe 50 million people are infected every year, and about 25,000 die, and of those, most of them are children or young people under the age of 20 years. So why are we worried about dengue fever today? Well, dengue is a serious illness. It's the second most common cause for people to be hospitalised after coming back from the tropics. It's a disease that's spreading after decades of control of mosquitoes. Uh, dengue uh, fever is now spreading across many tropical and subtropical regions. And because it can be deadly and because we're developing a safe vaccine, it's worth trying to prevent it. So what about this vaccine? What can you tell me about it? It's a, a live attenuated vaccine. It's based on a vaccine which we're still using today that was developed 70 years ago for yellow fever. It's been genetically um, rearranged so that it can now uh, protect against dengue uh, virus. There are four different types which are protected against in this one vaccine. So it's a really quite a clever vaccine, but it's based on technology that we developed 70 years ago, and we know that it's safe. That's fantastic. And is it ready now? Is it a vaccine that's available for commercial use? It's not available for commercial use. I imagine that it'll be about two years before that will be the case. We're doing a lot-to-lot -lot consistency study. That means we're comparing different batches. We know already that it's safely uh, been given to over 4,000 people. We know that those people make a good antibody response. So once our study's done next year, there'll be a very large study done in places like the Philippines where there's a lot of dengue, and that'll prove how effective the vaccine is. And once that's done, uh, the vaccine will be licensed and introduced. Not all of our listeners have a scientific background necessarily. Do you think you could give us a quick explanation of what a vaccine is and how it works? Well, vaccines are a way of uh, helping our immune system to respond to nasty infections by presenting to our immune system bits of the outer coats of germs, the outer bits that we can recognise, make antibodies against and make immunity so that instead of uh, getting a severe illness, all we do is get a bit of a fever by responding to that outer bit of a virus or a bacteria 
making antibodies and therefore becoming protected uh, for the long term. So it's not actually the vaccine that's fighting off the bug, it's your own immune system. Oh, absolutely. Um, our immune system uh, is uh, very refined and all we need to do is help it along and that's what vaccines do. So it's like flashcards before an exam. <laughs> In a way it is, but it's the kind of flashcards that don't stick just for a day, but for perhaps 10 years or perhaps a whole lifetime. If you'd like to know more about the study, we've got a team of um, experienced research nurses uh, and you could get, for example, Elizabeth Clark on 9845 1430 or Camille Lang on 9845 0136. Um, and they can explain to you what the study's about and work out whether you are eligible or not. So the idea is there's, they're recruiting at the moment for participants in the study. Uh, indeed, we're, we're recruiting right now and the study may well be fully recruited uh, by the end of next week. Oh, wow. Fantastic. So if you want to get involved, you've only got a few days. And that was Dr. Robert Boy from Sydney University plugging yet another vaccine, this one for dengue fever. And you're listening to Diffusion on 2SER here in Sydney and broadcast across Australia on CRN, the community radio network, and across the world on our podcast. And finally, in breaking science news, this morning the state of California ruled against legalising cannabis. And our intrepid medical reporter, Victoria Bond, went out and spoke to Marie Tison from the National Drug and Alcohol Centre about the relationship between schizophrenia and cannabis. I'm Professor Marie Tison, and I'm an academic at the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre in Sydney. We've spoken before on Diffusion about the relationship between marijuana and schizophrenia, but I guess I'd rather go straight to the source. Is there a relationship between pot and schizophrenia? Right. If you think about um, the relationship between pot or cannabis or marijuana and schizophrenia, um, I think about it in three different areas. I think about is there evidence for a specific disorder, which is psychosis caused by cannabis? Um, So that's the first area. The second one is does using um, cannabis make it more likely that you'll have schizophrenia? And the third one is, if you have schizophrenia already, does using cannabis make it worse? And so I try and split the question up into those three areas. Okay, so if I take the first one, is there evidence of a specific and different disorder or psychosis which is caused by cannabis? And the evidence is that there isn't. There isn't a specific cannabis psychosis. There are some case studies, mostly from Calcutta and very few of them, a couple of hundred, where people describe what they say is something quite different in terms of the symptoms, but the evidence is is very weak that there is a specific separate disorder of cannabis psychosis. So that's the first one out of the way. The next one is, if you've got a vulnerability to psychosis, does using cannabis increase your likelihood of um, developing that psychosis? And there is some evidence that while it doesn't cause it de novo from you, it does increase, cannabis use can increase the likelihood of psychosis in those who are vulnerable to psychosis. And, the, and, I, and some of that data, um, some of the best data is from a study in Sweden of conscripts into the army where they looked at their cannabis use um, in people who were 18 going into the army. And then, of course, they were screened out for, you know, whether they were a very healthy bunch. 
but they looked at whether the cannabis use was related to um, onset of um, schizophrenia and psychosis. And the heavier smoker you were, the more likely you were to develop um, psychosis later on. And that Swedish conscript study is still some of our best evidence for a relationship between heavy cannabis use early on and psychosis later on. Do you think perhaps the heavy cannabis use could have been a sort of self-medication for people who are already quite vulnerable to developing the disease? It's quite possible that you could have a, um, a self-medication. It's just that in these guys, they weren't showing any symptoms. Otherwise, they would have been screened out of um, going into the uh, army. So it's not likely that it was just a self-medication in those that were already showing symptoms. It's possible that these individuals might not have developed psychosis if they hadn't used cannabis. How would you be able to, to tease out the people that have a high threshold for developing schizophrenia and maybe turn to marijuana in term for self-medication as opposed to those who perhaps get a precipitated event by marijuana? Usually the easiest way to tell if you've got a vulnerability to developing schizophrenia is if you have a relative with schizophrenia and um, because there is a high genetic loading for psychosis and schizophrenia. So... Um, you, you can be vulnerable to developing schizophrenia without having any symptoms and it can be usually later in life that you develop them around um, early 20s, late, late adolescence to early 20s, but you can still be vulnerable early on and cannabis use often starts at 13 or 14. Um, that's when people start experimenting with it. So really the way for you to tell if you've got a vulnerability to psychosis is family members, um, and often that's hidden, so it can be really tricky. The aunt or uncle who's um, had psychosis but no one ever talked about it because there's so much stigma. Um, the other thing to say about the cannabis psychosis issue, and it's a real challenge to this area, is that a lot of people use cannabis and experiment with cannabis, but only about 1% of the population will develop or have a new development of schizophrenia and psychosis each year. So there'll be a heck of a lot of people who experiment with cannabis but don't develop psychosis. It's when you link the vulnerability plus the experimentation, that's when you really um, leave yourself vulnerable to precipitating psychosis. And so what's the science between chemical elements in, in cannabis that would precipitate a psychosis? Do we know? There is some biological plausibility around this in that um, we know that the uh, effect on the dopamine um, system, that, that um, antipsychotic drugs are about um, impacting on that, and we know also that cannabis has an um, impact in that area as well. So there is some biological plausibility that the THC actually impacts on the same neurochemicals that are implicated in the development of psychosis. And I read somewhere that marijuana, modern marijuana, is getting stronger and stronger. Would that impact, perhaps, um, the prevalence of pot-caused psychosis? If there's a bit of controversy over whether cannabis is getting stronger or not, and we don't have very good data on it because we don't collect it. Um, there's, there's some uh, conversations about hydroponic cannabis and it being stronger. We think what's actually happening is that there's a difference in the THC content of the heads of plants versus the leaves of plants. And there's also a difference in whether you smoke it rolled up as a joint or whether you smoke it as a bong. It's less that the concentration and more that people are using the heads more. 
and the kids are using bongs more and getting a higher concentration. So it's, it's um, in the end, it's the same thing, that you're getting more THC, but it's probably not that um, what we've got is greater concentration. It's just that kids are using it, or young adults and people are using it differently. Fascinating for me is that there is this relationship. It, it really says, you, you know, okay, a lot of people are going to use cannabis and be safe, but... It, there's also some. There are some quite very devastating risks associated with heavy use and early use of cannabis. Is the heavy use very common, or would it be? Because I also read that um, people who do tend to develop schizophrenia have a tendency to smoke up to 15 times more than yep. than regular quote unquote pot users. So you've got uh, compl- the complex mixture of not just the exposure to the cannabis, but exposure to heavy use of cannabis. Look. We think that um, a large number of people will try cannabis, but only about um, uh, uh, across the whole population, 2% will be dependent on cannabis. So it's 2 in 100 are going to be dependent on it, but more like 30% will have tried it. And in the younger age groups, sort of 18 through to 24, it's actually quite higher. It's, it's getting close on two-thirds of people will have tried cannabis. But heavy use is still a small proportion of the population, sort of two in a hundred dependent and using heavily. Where do you stand on the idea of legalising cannabis if there are these these quite significant risks associated with its use? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I take uh, more of the point of trying to have a harm minimisation approach and harm reduction approach to drug use. And um, alcohol is one of the most complex and dangerous substances and it's legal we still have harms associated with them I think there's an assumption that if you legalize that that um, we'll um, have um, less harm from that argument side I I actually think probably what's more important is making sure we have safe safe use of any drugs and that's all from us in this edition of diffusion if you'd like to contact us with feedback comments suggestions wild passionate praise proposals of marriage, that sort of thing. Send us an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on the website www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to this program were yours truly, Lachlan Watmore and Victoria Bond, who also produced and panelled the show. Diffusion is produced right here in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. And we'll see you next week.